Let there be no doubt. If Russia commits this breach by invading Ukraine, responsible nations around the world will not hesitate to respond. We do not stand for freedom. Where it is at risk today, we'll surely pay a steeper price tomorrow. Thank you. I'll keep you informed. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a week where much hung in the balance on the international front and the domestic political landscape, yet it was far from clear which way the pendulums were swinging. Russian troops amassed along three sides of the Ukrainian border, poised to invade and likely in that event to take quick control of Ukraine if it does. But then what? Putin's strategic calculations remained opaque, perhaps even to himself, even as the United States continued to say that an invasion was imminent. Donald Trump's legal, financial, and political fortunes all took hits, and a ruling by a New York judge requiring him to provide a deposition to the New York Attorney General put not just him, but Donald Jr. and Ivanka in distinct peril. And there were signs that some in his party were wanting him to pull back on his emphasis on the big lie. The Democrats' prospects for the midterms, which until recently seemed fairly bleak, were buoyed, or maybe not, by news that they had fared better than expected in the overall redistricting wars, perhaps even securing a net gain in seats against the Republicans. And to attempt to peer into the crystal ball and see if it holds war or peace in Ukraine, rebirth or ruin for Donald Trump, and a straight or slanted playing field for the Democrats in the midterms, we welcome a fantastic panel of Washington-savvy experts returning Talking Feds guests all. And they are Laura Coates, a CNN anchor and senior legal analyst, serious XM talk show host, and author now of two books. She served as a trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ during the Bush and Obama administrations. Her 2016 best-selling book is entitled You Have the Right, A Constitutional Guide to Policing the Police, and she has just published Just Pursuit, which uses a series of dramatic episodes from her courtroom career as a Black woman prosecutor for DOJ, to illustrate different aspects of the criminal justice system. I've read it, by the way, and it's a terrific read. I think we'll be doing a Talking Books episode on it at some point. Congrats on that, Laura, and thank you very much for returning to Talking Feds. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Josh Marshall, an American journalist and blogger, he founded Talking Points Memo, still, to my mind, the first and best political blog out there. In 2007, Talking Points Memo became the first and only blog still to win the George Polk Award for legal reporting. Josh's writing has also been widely featured in the leading national publications, and Talking Points Memo itself has evolved into a sort of international conglomerate covering a wide range of issues and analyses by journalists, academics, and former public officials. He also hosts the popular and excellent Josh Marshall podcast, where he provides his own insight into the big political stories of the day. Thanks for coming back, Josh Marshall. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And delighted to welcome back Congressman Ted Lieu, who represents California's 33rd Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. He's currently serving in his fourth term in Congress, where he sits on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee, as well as serving as the co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. He is a former active duty officer in the U.S. Air Force and served in the reserves, retiring with the rank of colonel in 2021. Thank you for your service. And thank you, as always, Congressman Lou, for returning to Talking Feds. Thank you, Harry. All right. So the focus of the week has been pretty well split between Trump's setbacks at home and the Ukraine-Russia standoff abroad. Let's start with Ukraine. Here's Josh's description of the last 10 days or so. 
The U.S. keeps raising the alarm about the near certainty of an invasion or the imminence of invasion, even as the Russians deny it. No surprise there. And the Ukrainians insist the situation isn't that dire. After a while of our doing this daily, is the U.S.'s sort of sky is falling predictions strategic? And if so, what's the strategy? I think it is both realistic and accurate in as much as the Russians are clearly going through the kind of deployments and maneuvers that you would do prior to an invasion. That doesn't mean they're certainly going to invade. It's also what you would do if you were trying to make a solid bluff that you were about to invade. So I think you know it's accurate in that sense. But what I think is happening here is that the U.S. has made a decision to sort of use the Russian threats against them, in a sense. The model that Russia got into this with is, we will make a very big show of force and threat of invasion, and we will extract some concessions, and then we will go back and we'll demand some more, and maybe we'll get some more, or maybe we'll get denied, and then we'll have a kind of a tug of war, and maybe we'll get what we want, and if we don't, maybe we actually will invade. And our premise will be, you started talking with us and you just did not address our security needs. And we went ahead and did this. And it seems to me that what the Biden administration and NATO have done is to basically not make any concessions and amplify the threats that Russia has made, either explicitly through statements or implicitly through this mobilization. And that has put I think the Russians in the position of, okay, you've threatened it. We're not going to do what you're demanding. And we're making very clear that you're making these threats. So either invade or don't. And I think that has boxed the Russians in to some extent. Now, doesn't mean they can't go ahead and invade, but I don't think they expected this flat a refusal or for NATO to be quite this united behind Biden slash NATO's refusal to make any concessions. I do think that has boxed the Russians in, and I suspect that they realize that an actual invasion is a massive gamble. It could go their way in which they invade and the government crumbles and they kind of get what they want on the cheap and they can pull back out and there's some new friendlier government. But if it doesn't, then they're kind of set for having to occupy a really big and unfriendly country. Then it's Afghanistan, huh? Yeah. At some level, I think their bluff has been called and they've been sort of kicking around for the last 10 days or so trying to think how to get out of that box. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. I think there was probably some surprise, although none, none of us can really truly get in the heads of Vladimir Putin. I'm not especially we even tried to do so. I'm not sure what it looks like inside of there. But when you think about the idea of his surprise, perhaps, at the ability or the willingness of the Ukrainian president to stand his ground, and essentially the same person who just days ago, Vladimir Putin had that really condescending comment about my beauty, right? The notion of trying to denigrate him in some way or patronize in a way that was going to alert the community and the country and the international community at large about one's power dynamic. But I'm also really cognizant of, as you talked about it, the bluff, the idea of just because of all of the, frankly, pervasive and ubiquitous presence of Russian troops or the threat of violence, the threat of an invasion over a long period of time, I wonder if we as Americans and others have this perception of apathy and ambivalence that really I don't think is there among the community in Ukraine. I think it really is about the notion of because it's this omnipresent threat that either you're going to live in a state of perpetual panic or you're going to have to, by default, play this wait and see game, which is very dangerous, excruciating, I'm certain, for all the people involved, let alone, you know, a kindergarten building being, you know, attacked by shelling. And so I just wonder in that tension of how we cover this to acknowledge the fact that that omnipresence is going to have an impact on how a nation views the imminence of a threat and how they react. I agree with everything Laura and Josh said. I just want to add two points. The first is not only did the U.S. and NATO not really make any concessions, but we took affirmative actions that really made Russia's situation even worse. So 
The State Department recently approved a $6 billion tank deal to Poland. Biden is sending additional troops to NATO-allied countries. NATO is much more unified than ever before. And I guarantee you, every NATO country is now going to look at increasing their defense budgets because of what Russia is threatening. So Putin is sort of getting the opposite effect that he, I think, originally wanted, which is to weaken NATO. Second, what we do know is that if you look at militaries and the U.S. military and the Russian military, all these militaries, they're great at their mission, which is to destroy things, blow things up, take over land. They are very, very bad at running countries. So no one doubts that Russia can take over Ukraine. But then what happens the following week, the following month, the following year, the following five years? And Russia is not going to, I think, want to run a country where the population is largely hostile to the Russians. So I don't think there's a lot of positive news for Putin if he wants to go ahead and invade Ukraine. Sort of a careful what you wish for. And you've also mentioned the conventional wisdom is he doesn't care about the citizenry and he can absorb sanctions. But you've tweeted out, Congressman, what a weak and non-diverse economy they have. And at least there'll be real privations. I wanted to double back to Ukraine and where they are in all this. You would think they would be cowering and the most nervous, but they seem almost to be telling us to lighten up. Where do you see their calculations as being? At one level, you're right. I think everybody has to be really impressed at how the citizens of Ukraine are just kind of going through their day by day. They're not cowering. But I think there's another dimension to this, which is that the Ukrainians, I think rightly, see this whole threat of invasion as a form of psychological warfare. And I think what Russia has hoped would happen here is, you know, those little, uh, you know, those things we used to shake, the little Christmas globe things, right, with the snow? Snow globe, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. snow globe. That I think their thing has been, look, we're going to take Ukraine and we're just going to shake it until something breaks. And then a Russia-friendly government will take over and we'll kind of get what we want. We all just had a glimpse into your childhood of how someone <laughs> handed you a fragile object and yes, you threatened yes, to yes. <laughs> shake it until exactly, it broke. Exactly, exactly. Rosebud. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think they have been saying, hey, calm it down here. But you are kind of doing the Russians' work for them by continually saying that an invasion is tomorrow, it's the next day, they're going to sack Kiev, all this kind of stuff. So I think quite apart from whether the two countries have different intelligence reads of the situation, that makes a lot of sense for them. I think the U.S. is pursuing its own kind of psyops vis-a-vis Russia in the context of the larger global community. And I think one of the things the U.S. is trying to do here is to say, play up these threats of invasion and make the Russians look stupid if they keep threatening this. And then the day after they were supposed to invade, they're saying, hey, let's talk again. It makes them look kind of like a paper tiger. So I think each side has these not totally distinct U.S. and Ukraine, but they've got some different angles here that both make sense from their point of view. The U.S. is trying to defend Ukraine, but the U.S. also has a broader beef with Russia and sees Russian credibility as a zero sum. I have some real reservations, though, about that notion. If that is the tactic of the U.S. to essentially poke the bear continuously to prove that somehow they do not mean what they say, just think of the collateral damage in the way of that sort of brinksmanship and gamesmanship. I'm not saying that we, in terms of diplomacy as a country, always have our hands on the table to show it until it's going on. But that would require Russia, I think, in some respects to care about the perception. I mean, obviously, there's a show of force. The phrase in itself tells you what it is. I tend to think and I hope just based on what we've heard from the commander in chief, from Secretary General and others, that diplomacy is not part of a tactic to poke that bear, that it's a hope to stop what might be the inevitable. But I really do wonder um, when we're talking about the coverage of it, to what extent Putin is playing provocateur and Putin playing the guarantor 
of an invasion. And it inures to his benefit, perhaps in both ways, to show, look at the attention on him. But I just doubt that the strategy is to poke the bear just so that Russia can have a decline in reputational credibility. They're pretty low as it is in the international community, wouldn't you think? I think I'm hearing all three of you say something that's noteworthy and maybe unconventional, which is that we're being myopic toward Russia. We're emphasizing here the sort of imperialist, bellicose sense of them, but that really we ought to be more thoughtful about their own need not to feel like NATO is at their shores and that maybe there's not just saber rattling on Putin's part and that we're not accurately calculating that. Do I have that right? For me, I'm not sympathetic to the idea that we're not considering Putin's feelings. The idea that I'm suggesting is that there is perhaps a myopia in thinking that, one, the American public has all the answers, that we know what is happening behind the scenes, or that we're in the minds of Vladimir Putin or even our own diplomatic teams doing so. Obviously, when we talk about the Ukrainian-Russian crisis that's developing, I think we can all agree that there is far more to the story than simply Putin on its surface saying, I don't want you to become a NATO member country. There's obviously a great deal of context of history as to the why, as to the consequences. And I think that we perhaps might overstate and perhaps believe that Putin cares more about American opinion of him than he really does. I agree with Laura that we don't know really what the Russians are thinking. I'm not even sure Putin really knows what he is going to do. But what we do know is Putin has invaded Ukraine in the past. We can't discount this threat at all. And his buildup looks very possibly like he could do an all invasion of Ukraine if he wanted to. So I think that's what the State Department and or Department of Defense are reacting to, not just what they're seeing now, but also Putin's past actions. They do have a point. I'm not sure they have a point today, 25, 30 years ago, at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. made a decision to essentially enroll the Warsaw Pact into NATO. And we've done it with a few countries that were actually part of the Soviet Union. And a lot of us thought at the time, this may not be such a hot idea. Now, a lot of those countries wanted to do it for really obvious and good reasons from their point of view. But Russia is a country with a aggressively expansionist history and a very well-earned paranoia, wariness about being invaded, right? So the idea that we were going to take our main military alliance in the world and push it right up to their borders to say that you, Russia, with all this kind of imperial history and idea of the near abroad and all that kind of stuff, that we are going to take our military alliance and your sphere of influence will stop at your national border. (laughs) You can do that. And I I know why the Poles wanted to do it. I would want to do it as a Pole or a Czech or Romanian, all these different countries. But the idea that we would do that and Russia would pay, hey, cool, that's fine. I don't mind. That was crazy. And so Putin is not alone at feeling that the U.S. and NATO took advantage of a moment when Russia was on its knees to really pen Russia in and make it really hard for it ever to be a great power. You come up to today, and I think Russia basically is now a revisionist power, largely a bad actor on the global stage. And you can see that from either perspective. Maybe we kind of brought this about by our actions 25 years ago, or I think it's equally plausible to say the people who said, hey, let's take this moment and kind of lock in these other countries into our club because the Russians have a history of being bad actors on the world stage. Regardless, though, here we are right now, and the congressman would have more insight on this than I do, but no one's been talking about bringing Ukraine into NATO in any concrete timeline. It's inconceivable, right? And right now, you have, will be, if it happens, a totally unprovoked, large-scale invasion of a neighboring country. And we've got really good reasons, both in sort of the the global state system, basic equity and democratic rights, and also our interest as a great power in doing everything we can, A, to prevent that, but also, I didn't mean, Laura, to imply that our whole goal is here is just to kind of knock Russia around and make them look stupid. I think that there are a few different goals of at least what I see us doing 
The main one is to say, you can do this if you want to do it. We're not going to prevent you militarily from invading Ukraine, but we're going to make crystal clear what you're doing. It's not going to catch anybody off guard. And we are going to try to use our access to a lot of information, a lot of intelligence to kind of knock you off stride. And I think what the U.S. has done here, and I think at some level as one goal, has been to take the threat of invasion, that kind of permanent looming threat of invasion, and make it less a weapon and more kind of a liability. That if you're going to kind of keep saying you're going to invade, are you going to invade? Because we're not going to kind of endlessly give you concessions. I mean, it is a liability if you're Ukraine, right? Because under NATO and talking about the terms of it, the idea of having and being the potential for a permanent liability and that NATO members would have to have an affirmative obligation to come to one's aid, Russia is successful in the sense of always having a sort of Damocles hanging over Ukraine in the event it was even conceived as something that would join the membership immediately. But I still go back to the idea, and, and, and interestingly enough, made, and I'm not making a direct comparison to you in the figure, but some of the comments you made intimate almost the idea of, given the history of the international relationship and America's role in diplomatic endeavors in the past and putting its thumb on the scale, I've heard recently on a lot of right-wing media in particular, Fox News has spoken about this issue, Carlson is talking about this issue in the sense of asking the question at times rhetorically, why are we on the side of Ukraine versus Russia? And the reason that I think that's an important question to ask is because Obviously, in Congressman Lou, you know this, the idea of as autonomous and as much agency as Congress has, there is a certain element that's beholden to public opinion and the will of the people. And so if the people aren't quite clear about the mission, about to whom allegiance is owed, the nuance that is involved in, hey, it's not a NATO member, NATO's a concern here, they're not actually going to become a member of NATO, they're a liability if they become a member of NATO, but let's have troops and boots on the ground in the neighboring countries to do so. I think that fosters some confusion in a way that I wonder if it is having an impact on Capitol Hill about how to approach and message the issue to the American people. Particularly, we're only a few months away from when that horrible Afghanistan withdrawal took place, and many Americans had questions even then about the tenure of that particular presence. And so I wonder to what extent that is being talked about on the Hill. So Tucker Carlson, as you know, says crazy things not based on the facts, and you see a number of Republican senators pushing back on him. And the answer to his question is actually quite simple. The United States supports democracies, and we oppose countries like Russia that want to attack democracies. Oh, you know, and America knows Russia attacked the United States in 2016 in a sweeping, systematic manner in our elections. Russia routinely tries to hack into American businesses and American institutions. There's a lot of reasons why Mitt Romney called Russia America's greatest geopolitical threat. And so there is ample reason why we would side with Ukraine over Russia. When you look at what's happening on Capitol Hill, you actually see a fair amount of deference to the Biden administration. You don't see a lot of Republicans out there sort of yelling and screaming and attacking the administration. And that's a good thing, because I think on issues of war and peace and a foreign policy, you should come together as a nation and try to have a united front. I just want to underscore a point that a few of you made in passing, which is the complications this maybe raises for our allies in NATO. Laura, you've mentioned their budgets are going to go up. They've had 25 years or so of relative security and peace. And maybe there's slight schism or tension between us and them that the Biden administration has to take stock of. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. And the topic today is the Electoral Count Act, the subject recently of bipartisan negotiations in the Congress to try to revise and ostensibly reduce the potential for confusion in close presidential elections. And to explain it to us, we are thrilled to welcome John Lithgow. John is a prolific actor and a recipient of numerous awards, including two Golden Globes, six Emmys, two Tonys, and two Academy Award nominations for The World According to Garp and Turns of Endearment. He plays Winston Churchill in Netflix's The Crown. 
So I give you John Lithgow on the Electoral Count Act. What is the Electoral Count Act? One of the rallying cries during the Capitol insurrection last year was that Mike Pence, then vice president, should overturn the election results in favor of Donald Trump. Just recently, Pence said that Trump was, quote, wrong about his ability to overturn the election. Pence retorted that his power under the Constitution did not permit him to alter the results. That is clearly the case. But the Electoral Count Act, a statute passed in 1876 to clarify the process and prevent tumultuous transfers of power, has given rise to some confusion, which a bipartisan majority in Congress is seeking to remedy by amending the statute. Our unusual electoral college system technically gives electors from each state, rather than the public at large, the power to choose the president and vice president. That feature gives rise to the possibility of confusion over who has won the presidency. Perhaps no presidential election has been so controversial as the 1876 contest between Rutherford Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Tilden won the popular vote, the only losing candidate in history to do so. Other losing candidates won pluralities. But by congressional compromise, Hayes was awarded 20 disputed electoral votes from Reconstruction government states that had sent two alternate slates to Washington to win the presidency by a vote of 185 to 184. In return for the 20 votes, Republicans agreed to withdraw troops from the South, effectively ending Reconstruction. Ten years after the 1876 election, Congress passed the Electoral Count Act, with the ostensible goal of setting up a process to prevent similarly confusing endgames and guaranteeing peaceful transfer of power. The Act establishes a timetable for when different parts of the counting process must take place, as well as a dispute resolution process for how Congress will resolve irregularities in accepting electoral slates from states. But the Act turns out to be arguably unclear or problematic in two respects. One, the role of the vice president in the process, and two, the ease with which a single senator can object to the count from a state and thereby force both houses to debate the issue for two hours. Trump supporters, led by Trump himself, were able to exploit these lacunae to argue meritlessly that Pence could simply reject electoral votes outright. The reform proposals address these two issues in various ways. One leading set of proposals would be to, one, add a provision specifying that the vice president's role is merely ministerial, and two, requiring one-third of each chamber to object before the two-hour debate requirement is triggered. For Talking Feds, I'm John Lithgow. Thank you very much, John Lithgow, for that explanation of the Electoral Count Act. John will be in the upcoming FX series, The Old Man, alongside Jeff Bridges. In the last few years, as his own personal public service in the age of Donald Trump, John has spread his creative wings even wider and has produced three books of satirical poetry collections. And they are Dumpty, The Age of Trump in Verse, Trumpty Dumpty Wanted a Crown, Verses of a Despotic Age, and the third book just published in October, A Confederacy of Dumpties, Portraits of American Scoundrels in Verse. This episode of Talking Feds is brought to you by the American Constitution Society. I'm Russ Feingold, president of ACS the nation's foremost progressive legal organization, committed to ensuring that the U.S. Constitution, our laws, and legal systems are forces for protecting our democratic legitimacy and improving the lives of all people. ACS is powered by our nationwide network of over 250 student and lawyer chapters engaging on national, state, and local issues. Right now, we are focused on diversifying the federal courts, building a progressive pipeline of next-generation lawyers 
and advocating for Supreme Court reform. ACS is for lawyers and non-lawyers alike because our laws and our courts impact all of us. You can learn more about ACS by following us on social media at ACS Law or by visiting our website, acslaw.org. Be sure to also check out our podcast, Broken Law, about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. On the topic of Donald Trump, it's been a bruising week. After watching Trump get out of apparently fatal spots from even before the election, we all probably have a shell-shocked impulse to assume that there's nothing he can't wriggle out of. Still, the last few weeks have brought a steady and increasing drumbeat of very bad developments for the former president, and let's discuss a few of them. Starting with, I think, maybe the most ominous, not just for Trump, but also Trump Jr. and Ivanka, who have to be considered. Mazars disavows 10 years of statements, which they basically said, you gave us false information. And then just yesterday, a New York court denied his motion to quash the subpoena from the New York Attorney General to depose him in connection with her fraud action. How does he get out of this one? Isn't the best scenario for him, and this is the best, is taking the Fifth Amendment within relative short order, even if there is an appeal, the way Eric Trump did in the same proceeding 500 times. How rough a ride is this for Trump? So let me first say that every American, including the former president, is entitled to the presumption of innocence and has absolute right to take the Fifth Amendment. I also want to add that no president or former president out of honor and respect to the American people should ever take the Fifth Amendment. Hmm, interesting. Wow. Okay. So you think there's an actual surpassing responsibility to just Whatever it is, you got to play it as an open book. That's your obligation for having been the commander in chief. That is my view. And if you don't do that, then it is absolutely fair for every American to draw the worst possible negative inferences from you refusing to testify. And by the way, the law says something similar. This is a civil proceeding. So unlike a criminal proceeding where you couldn't even comment on it, if he takes the fifth and they go to trial, the jury can be told to draw an adverse inference to assume that what he said would have been bad for him. I felt a tear come to my (laughs) eyes with the precision that you just used, Harry, in describing (laughs) it. You ought to think about doing this for a living at some point. I'm just telling you. You know anybody? All right, never I don't know. I've, I've heard a couple openings. I don't know. I'm, I'm in my mind though. You need not even have to revert back to a legal understanding. You could also quote the former president in his own comments on the campaign trail and as the president of the United States when he, he expressed what views he thought should be concluded from one's decision to take the fit. I mean, he multiple times between the locker up chance talking about the idea of anyone who pleads the fifth is guilty. The presumption of innocence was just not there. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing him, but the sentiment was precisely the same. There's always a tweet. There's always a tweet. And he basically had backed himself into a corner. Now, the interesting notion about one being nicknamed Teflon Don, of course, and for the reasons you've said, is that if an aversion to being hypocritical was his driving MO, much of his presidency and its self-inflicted wounds would never have occurred, right? That was not his main goal here. But I think in the form of what this might do, what image would this send to the world, number one, but also what we think about perhaps him taking the fifth, his children, two of his adult children also have now are in this position. So even when he made his comments that obviously triggered the domino effect of Mazar's, um, the letter being released and then the AG in New York saying, Your honors, he has actually said he knows far more about financial statements than he's ever letting on to. I wonder what impact it's going to have on his potential, not co-defendants, but those who are investigated along with him. Because the arguments, as Congressman Lou articulated, about why we don't want a former president, the president's children, they still have the right ideologically and, of course, in practice to do so. But because there is that complementary parallel criminal investigation, the stakes are incredibly high here. And I note that Mazar said they have that, I can't forget the adjective, but they have a conflict of interest that they cannot get out of, unwaivable. And that's why they had to fire their client, which to me says, are you getting ready to testify? And if you are, what's that going to mean? 
I really like this point about Ivanka and Don. And in general, I mean, people are all over this. So I'd like to go a little bit into the recesses of less covered aspects. Ivanka and Don Jr., they're younger. They maybe have political ambitions. And we expect probably Trump himself to take the fifth and then come out growling about how it's not that he's guilty, but that she's biased. What's the calculus for Ivanka and Don? I would assume their calculus is, and they've come out and said it before. I mean, Ivanka in particular, and Eric Trump recently has said the same thing, and Don Jr. certainly, the idea that they are the collateral damage in a partisan witch hunt, that they believe that this is just yet an extension of this very notion. And that much as we talk about the audience of one, back when Trump was president, people consider this now to be the goal of the defendant of one, if not three. And so they'll make these arguments, but Remember, the attorney general in New York, her goal, she said, in part to have these subpoenas and positions was she wants to ascertain to whom she should attribute the misstatements. And so they all have grounds to essentially say, I don't want to give you the information and obviously expose myself to liability. I just want to note this. uh, Okay, I'll call it delicious aspect of what's just happened (laughs) because We have Trump coming out in the wake of the Messer's letter with the, it was perfect, Trump defense. It shows the whole thing is mooted and couldn't be a better acquittal. And, you know, you have the courts as the voice of reason. So you have the judge here saying, are you on drugs, basically? He's comparing him to Orwell and Lewis Carroll and using it as a justification, as you say, Laura, for actually serving up the worst questions to them. Who did this? Who said it? How was it false? So there really is a kind of self-inflicted wound here in response to the Trump strategy par excellence of just doubling down and being even more positive about the worst possible news. I tend to see Trump family legal liability is a bit like what's like a Zeno's paradox kind of thing, right? He'll continue to be in greater and greater jeopardy. And yet it'll just keep proceeding into the future when he may actually pay some consequence. I mean, my company, we tend to operate on a, on a cash basis. We don't do a lot with like commercial paper and stuff, but in the real world. But your brand is so valuable. Billions, It, it, it is, it is. But in the real world, if you have your accountant say all of your records cannot be relied on, all of that company's loans would be called in. You could not survive that. So I don't know what civil liabilities, what business impact, all this kind of stuff. But I really see this more in the context of for 20 different reasons, Trump's big goal is to maintain control of the Republican Party. That is the big, big, big thing. And I think that is both for ego, it is probably to protect himself against the law, even to defend his business interests. And what we've seen, especially in the last month or so, maybe month or six weeks, there's more Republicans willing to not be like never Trump or something like that, but kind of like Ron DeSantis saying, yeah, I may run, even if he runs, or kind of criticizing him here and then You have Mitch McConnell's trying to get his own Senate candidates. And there was a piece, and I think Axios a few days ago saying, why is he raising all this money? Our candidates need money. So you see, I don't think he's going anywhere, but you have people more willing to challenge him at least somewhat. And so these legal issues, this kind of deepening legal vulnerability is playing into that. I don't know if he's going to get charged with anything. It's just this thing that keeps getting in his way and keeps becoming a bigger thing. And I think makes other Republicans a little more, not that they're denouncing Trumpism, but thinking like, you know, that was great, but maybe we get Ron DeSantis. He's like Trump, but he's not still talking about 2020 and doesn't have this big business empire that we've got to worry about pleading the fifth. So that's the context that it's most interesting to me. Less, is he going to get indicted for something or, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. And I want to end here with the uh, politics, although let's first march through a couple of the developments in the congressman's backyard. So Rudy Giuliani, we've had this report this week that he's getting ready to cooperate. And what they want to question him about is the election stuff where he seems to be dripping with criminal liability. Do you buy it? Do you actually see Rudy Giuliani stepping forward and testifying? 
When I was a house impeachment manager, it was very clear to us that January 6th wasn't just a one day thing. Remember, you have to you have to clarify which impeachment. Multiple impeachments. <laughs> you right. can't can't be so vague, <laughs> right? There's more than one. The second impeachment. Okay, of the okay, okay. okay. Because he was in as many bad. years. <laughs> it was clear to us that January 6th wasn't just a one day thing. There was planning and build up to it, and Rudy Giuliani was a central player. We weren't able to get him to testify as a witness. Very pleased that the January 6th committee now appears to be talking with him. And he has a lot that he could shed light on, and I hope he does that because he has some critical knowledge that the American people should know. I mean, he not only knows where the bodies are buried, I think he wielded the shovel in many instances, but he came out right after these reports with the biggest trashing of the committee. You know, it's worse than September 11th. It's worse than Pearl Harbor. It's worse than the Civil War. Not the words of a guy who's softening up to cooperate. Frankly, I am most interested, and I'm sure you all are as well. Maybe it's a journalist in me, maybe the prosecutor, maybe it's the nosy person within me. And that is, I want the public hearing aspects to start. I want the synthesized data to start to come out. The last time we really had the public hearings on these issues, it was when you had those three or four officers who valiantly fought to protect the citadel of our democracy, speaking about what their experience was. And it was so riveting, so impactful. In fact, One of the most disappointing aspects were that you had some members of Congress who said, I didn't bother to watch that, which I found revolting to think about, that people wouldn't have taken the time to hear from the people who had really fought to save everyone's lives in that building. But now there's been a shift ever since we've heard about the communications that may have taken place that day. You have people like Senator Mitch McConnell saying he's interested in hearing more information about these things. And so I wonder at what point it's going to become, speaking of imminence in the first part of our conversation, it ought to be imminent to begin to hear that information publicly. There's been hundreds of interviews, we understand, and discussions with people. And I, for one, am very intrigued as to what they have found. And I know there's this clock of the midterm elections and the clock of the threat that's always looming about a shift in the balance of power. But I think the American people, I fear that there is an assumption about a patience level that is not there. And right or wrong, so many people in the electorate have conflated Robert Mueller with Merrick Garland in terms of when are we going to get everything? Now, obviously, these were so separate, nothing to do with one or the other, frankly. And yet many a person will conflate and their own impatience. And so they'll say, listen, where is the beef? Where are the information points we need to have? I hope Congress is in tune with that, at least on the committee side. I've talked to a number of members on January 6th committee. And first of all, they're doing a fantastic job. They get it. They understand public perception and so on. They just want to make sure they have as complete a story as they can before they go public. And they keep getting really good information that keeps coming in. And it's not necessarily a bad thing every week for this good information to be shown publicly. And the American public are seeing this week by week. So I think they understand they need to have public hearings sooner rather than later, but they also want to make sure they have a good investigation completed or largely completed before they launch publicly. And Congressman, you're so right about that notion. And you know this, you were a prosecutor as well. The idea of this sort of speaking or talking indictment, every time these subpoena letters go out, it's the equivalent in my mind of these sort of talking indictments. And it's like, here are all the things we're going to tell you. And we know it's going to come out there. So now that you know all the ways we already have corroboration for what this is, when do you feel like coming in? When are you going to do so? So in that respect, I think there is some level of transparency and public nature of us reading these letters. I still obviously want more. I think it's coming sooner rather than later. They, they get it. The visitor logs seem to be coming. How big a haul is that going to be, do you think? Will they give a real roadmap of January 6th? It'd be pretty funny if it was just, oh, Mike Lindell, right? <laughs> <laughs> Back again with pizza. And yet not shocking. There would be elements of that. I get the sense I'm the only one in this group that does not have a law degree. And so I will speak up for not a different point of view, but just, a, I think, a complimentary point of view. We saw this in the Mueller probe. It's the shadow of the Iran-Contra investigation and what happened to Ali North. There's always a sense of like, well, we can't do this or can't do that because, you know, it might get in the way of a prosecution. Someone could get off on appeal later or something like that. I think that whole approach is wrong. I think if people committed crimes, they absolutely should be charged and they should be held accountable. But in civic terms, if and when we have to make the choice, to me, 
it's far more important that we know what Mark Meadows did, what Donald Trump did, what all the people did, what actually happened, rather than, you know, Mark Meadows spends six months in prison or he's on probation. for Like, that's great. This is not saying anybody should not be held accountable. But fundamentally, what is most important is getting the actual truth in front of the public. Because at the end of the day, the real consequences are political. The public can make choices based on the truth they have found out. I mean, how old's Rudy? Like 75 or something like that? Do I really care if going to be in a low security prison for 18 months? I mean, great if he's convicted of something. But that is not a really big consequential thing for the health of our democracy. It's important. It's not nearly as important as getting the actual information out there. And we saw this in fairly high relief with the Mueller probe and the fact that there really was no complementary congressional investigation. Now, it's obvious reasons. Most of that time, Congress was under Republican control. But you had this odd thing where when people are reading the Mueller report and saying, well, wait, can we know what happened there? No, 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 no. Because grand jury secrecy and the regulation of like, if you don't bring a charge, it's unfair to say, well, (laughs) that makes a lot of sense if you're a dentist being investigated for fraud or something like that. But these are fundamentally public, civic things. Some things maybe remain confidential, but as the public, what was the president doing with the foreign government? We need to know that. I couldn't care less about like all this stuff about grand jury secrecy and stuff. So that's where I think since Iran-Contra, we've had that balance kind of off. So I hope with the Jan 6 committee, they will lean in that other direction. I agree with Josh. And I know that Zoe Lofgren floated use immunity for Jeffrey Clark earlier this month. So I think the committee well understands the availability of immunity. And they're looking, I think, at using it for some witnesses. So we'll see what the committee decides. It's just so important. We're not talking about the public hearings through a trial of the Department of Justice, whose job it is to have criminal referrals that are in criminal prosecutions. This is what underscores the point for me, that the January 6th committee, it's about their legislative and oversight function. And I hope that whatever they're able to conclude, they're able to bridge the gap between if it's an issue what was lawful and what ought to be made illegal, right? The idea of drafting laws that actually reflect the contemporary notions that thinking about democracy in terms of gentlemen's agreements and ladies' handshakes and in case of emergency, break glass and nothing's there because people presume that things will always just work themselves out. There are some legislative gaps that obviously need to be taken care of. But I do think that the committee, I hope that their purpose in getting the information and being transparent is to do just that, what you're describing, to be able to say what happened. Because I, like many other members of the electorate, think to myself, gosh, just how close were we? We hear phrases like democracy in peril. Did it really just come down to Vice President Pence saying, no go? Were there other people involved? We hear about the Eastman memo. We hear about, as you alluded to, Harry, the fraudulent slate of electors. Tell me this whole ecosystem so that there can be the appropriate guardrails that now realize the possibilities of this. And I think once we have the information, the more public these hearings, I think all the more illuminating, because as you know, it's not like elections stopped in 2020. We've got elections again in what, less than nine months. We've got more elections every cycle in our government. So everything has the potential for being vulnerable. And that's why I really think it's incumbent to really feel that urgency. And I know Congressman Luther's there for his colleagues to do so, which is great. But that's why I'm most interested in the reasons you articulated. What really happened? Tell me it all. The underbelly, the warts and all, and then figure out how to correct it. It's very, very well said. And Josh, thanks for encapsulating it so well. I mean, look, you say it ultimately matters for politics. And that's, I think that's accurate. But I would define politics more large there in terms of basically democratic self-governance. I mean, it's an imperative, a social imperative. Yeah, and that's the sense in which I mean it. The fundamental things that the democracy needs to make a choice about. Exactly. And it's been an, a, a total affront. Compare, say, the Kennedy assassination or the 9-11 report. That was just a given. And when you think about it this way, you zero in on a couple things. One, the sort of perfidy of the Republicans in Congress who are 
actually not just not signing on, but really trying to undermine that goal. And then the importance of the midterms, because there's a possibility that this imperative task gets stopped in its tracks. And there's more to talk about on Trump, but let's use this as a segue to talk just a little bit in kind of raw political terms about redistricting and everything that's happening on the ground. We have this week when nobody was looking after all the reports that the Republicans are exploiting every advantage and getting real legs up in the state by state, an assessment that maybe about two thirds of the way through the process, it's an even playing field or the Dems have actually done a little bit better in all the redistricting. So is that true? But also how big a harbinger is it of a more competitive midterms than we'd all been conditioned to expect as recently as, say, a month ago? I don't think it changes the outlook for the midterms much at all. And I think it's really important to understand what we mean when we say the Democrats ended up eking out a bit of advantage. The 2010 redistricting was a massive victory for Republicans across the country. And it laid the groundwork for their big pickup in 2010 and then built on in 2012 and the whole subsequent decade. So what happened was Democrats basically held them to the existing pretty massive advantage they had from the 2010 redistricting. So it didn't get even worse But that's what we're talking about. We're not saying redistricting equally advantages both parties. And if you dig a little deeper, what happened is that certainly across the Sun Belt and to a lesser extent in other parts of the country, Republicans had these very well gerrymandered states, but you had population growth often in the middle suburbs, often by less white constituencies that were putting those gerrymanders under some pressure. And they use their control mostly to shore up those seats, to kind of lock them down again, that they gotten kind of loose after a decade. And that's what you see in Georgia, Texas, these different places, even though there weren't bigger gains. But that's, I think, the important context to see it through. The other takeaway, and redistricting is not completed yet. There's still some states that are not done and there's court filings. But it is likely that next year there are going to be more districts that Biden had won the congressional districts than we have this year. So that is good news to Democrats. The other good news is while it's true that at this point in time, the president has low approval ratings, people don't sort of vote on approval ratings. They vote on candidates. So if you place Biden and Trump right now in a poll, as came out a few weeks ago, it shows Biden beating Trump pretty handily. And when you look at, for example, the congressional generic ballot, Reuters just released a poll yesterday that showed Democrats were up eight points. And so it sort of depends on specifically what poll you're looking at. There are other polls that show Republicans somewhat ahead in the generic ballot, but it does show that the public is going to be making decisions based on their individual member of Congress and who the candidates are in their particular district, which may or may not reflect what a current president's approval ratings actually are. To back up that point, generally speaking, new president, Democrats control everything. That's kind of what they're suffering from now. They control everything. It's not Biden versus Trump. It's just Biden. What do you think, right? But the situation is a little different right now because there is Trump. He's, he's still there. And certainly the Democrats will try to make it that way. That plays to their advantage. But it's not just a ploy. It's real. If you talk to partisan Democrats and people who are open to an anti-Trump message, one of the biggest things they worry about is Are we going back to that in 2024 or are we setting it up in 2022 and all that kind of stuff? There are these different dynamics in this cycle that I do think give Democrats some real hope that this isn't just like the normal thing where the old president just heads off and starts working on his library, right? There's different possibilities afoot. There's also an X factor, and Laura, that you've written about. I wanted to maybe close with this, which is the U.S. Supreme Court. We saw them this week in a so-called shadow docket case insert themselves on behalf of Republican entities and got further the Voting Rights Act. So 
Do we have to assume that the court will inject itself into the process at any opportunity? Well, look, they're telling you through the Purcell rule, which essentially is that the court doesn't want to weigh in and make any changes judicially so close to an election because it might confuse the electorate. They're taking the position, albeit in a shadow docket, that they are being laissez-faire, hands-off. We don't want to confuse the issue, even though the first primary, for example, was like in May and they have several months until that and the confused electorate is really not actually happening in terms of the midterms either. And so I do think it's strategic in many ways and disingenuous to suggest that I think we will have a hands-off approach when it comes to an alleged racially gerrymandered district because we don't want to violate a rule that people might be confused about four or five months down the road, and there's ample time to correct the issue. That, to me, reads disingenuously, which, of course, is what members of the bench have said on that very issue. I just think, you know, we're talking about 2020 and 2022 midterms and 2024 presidential election. I will always be most concerned about one year, and that is 1965. That was the year that this seminal civil rights legislation, the Voting Rights Act, came out. And yet more and more, the more we have clawing back of voting rights, the more we look like 1964 on an issue that really is the predicate for every democratic initiative. Everything about our democracy is supposed to rely on people not guaranteed to vote for the winner, but guaranteed to participate in the process fully. And so the more the Supreme Court either renders anemic or altogether guts different provisions that get us to be beyond 1965, the more every person who believes in democracy should be concerned. And I constantly wonder why the Supreme Court does not do itself any favors in these self-inflicted wounds of undermining their own credibility. What a week. And we are out of time except for our Talking Five feature. And I'm going to invoke the congressman again because in a a funny exchange with, uh, remember him, whatever happened to Sean Spicer, He said, what was the point of the halftime show? Generally considered a rousing success, by the way. You said, well, I think the point might have been entertainment. Ever heard of Louis Armstrong? So our Talking Five question this week is, what artist or group, living or dead, would you, in your fantasy, have at the next Super Bowl halftime show? Boy, this is going to be tough for the musical polyglot Josh Marshall, I just want to again say has truly influenced my own thoughts about Bob Dylan, which is saying a lot. Okay, anyone? To me, it's pretty open and shut. Prince. Again, huh? It just wasn't enough. We want the 2007 encore. (laughs) Well, look, look, he did the far and away the best Super Bowl halftime show ever like two or three times better than any other. If it could happen, I would love to see him again. So again, to me, it's open and shut. All right. Look, I, first of all, I have to follow this because, of course, I'm from Minnesota. So I can't give any other answer in the universe other than saying, of course, I support Prince. But if Prince were to decline for whatever reason, then I think it's got to be Tina Turner and Earth, Wind and Fire, both in their prime. So I just want folks to understand that my music appreciation stopped in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> It would be a mashup of uh, three Bs. It would be Blondie, Berlin, and Benatar. Wow. And I'm going with the Bs, too. And I know it's boring, but come on. What can you do? The halftime show? The Beatles, as Ed Sullivan would put it. Okay, we are out of time on a really packed week. Thank you very much to Laura, Josh, and Representative Ted Liu. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. Talking Feds is now available on the Spectrum News app, where you can find the local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com. You also can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics and other features exclusively for supporters. And these aren't outtakes or simply ad-free episodes, though we do have those there. 
but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. Just in the last few days, we've posted discussions with Will Butler of Arcade Fire about the vantage point of artists on the Spotify disputes and the music industry in the streaming age, and with Professor Jessica Levinson on the Palin versus New York Times lawsuit, which could plow new ground in the First Amendment. There's also brief explainers there from me. There's opportunities to do Q&As. And just this week, in fact, our insiders attended this very episode and listened in in real time as we taped it. So a lot of great possibilities at Patreon. You can go look and see what they are and decide if you'd like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, Associate Producer Olivia Henriksen, Assistant Producer Matt McArdle, Sound Engineering by Adam Macias, David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to the great and multi-talented John Lithgow for explaining the Electoral Count Act in today's sidebar. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.